I have Dr. Ed Stetzer with us. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute. Is that the Dr. Ed Stetzer? <laughs> In which event, I would say, yes, it is. Oh, gosh. Or you may be saying, who on earth is Ed Amen. Stetzer? Amen. In, in which case, uh, you'll know more and be able to answer that question. Um, uh, there's some cool stuff about him. But I'm going to do it through dialogue, like a, a little bit of a lawyer, instead of just oh. me telling you all about him, with him being a prop up here, waving periodically. So with that, let the dialogue begin. And welcome, by the way, to everybody at Jersey Village, anybody on the Internet that's watching uh, we always treasure you being a part of this, and we love your notes and comments. Janet Seifert stays on top of them and answers them all. So, uh, welcome. Um, all right, I call you Dr. Ed Stetzer. Okay. That's pretty close, isn't it? That is all accurate. All three of those words are me. All right, and um, you, um, I, you, you've got a lot of things that, that you've done in your life, but I want you to highlight a couple of okay. them. First of all, let's start with your family. Yes. I'm married to Donna. We met each other at 15 years of age when I was leading a Bible study at Lake Hal High School. And she came in late to the Bible study. She was going to softball practice wearing her softball uniform. And she left early so she could go to practice. And I remember uh, during the Bible study being a little distracted by this very beautiful young lady who uh, I uh, became friends with. And then at 16, we started to date. We dated from 16 to 20. At 20, we got, we went to the prom, we did all those things. We got married at 20. And, um, in, in our, in college, between our junior and senior year, at 20, don't tell our daughters. And, um, and times were different times then. Times were different. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah, like the depression yeah. era. I mean, I it mean, wasn't the, that different. Life expectancy was 23. Yeah, exactly. So you had exactly. To get, oh. For the record, this was the late 80s, but ever, oh. not neither. <laughs> Which is actually like a long time ago. It actually feels like late eighties, yeah. like twenty years. Yeah. So it's not. Yeah. So we uh, we then uh, moved when we were twenty one, graduated college, moved to the inner city of Buffalo, New York, to plant a church among the urban poor. It's our beginning of our journey. All right. So where were you in high school where you met the lovely Donna? So I grew up in New York City. Donna grew up in Canada. We both moved down to Florida. So I lived as a teenager in the Orlando area. Um, our family. My dad was a was a was a drunk. Uh, alcoholic, sobered up now, wonderful, close relationship. But um, he kept losing his job, so we basically had to get out of New York City where he was a union iron lather. Started over, he just got sober and moved. That's my phone. You please leave my phone alone. Uh, was, can you post this for sale on eBay? Uh, sorry. <laughs> this is what lawyers are like. Anyway, um, there are Christian lawyers. I know both of them. Um, so... Uh. Hey, you calling me schizophrenic? Not at all, sir. Okay, Not I'm all. sorry. Not Go ahead. All, sir. Uh, anyway, so um, so we um, yeah, so we had a this journey of life that is uh, joyful, filled with fun and more. So God moved you around a lot. We did. We partly because we I went into church planting. So we planted the first church in Buffalo, New York, in the uh, it was the time of the fastest shrinking city in America. We planted a church among the urban poor uh, in the crack epidemic of the late '80s, early '90s. Um, from there, went down the road to Erie, Pennsylvania, planted three churches. So primarily, I was a church planter. And then uh, I got a phone call from someone who wasn't, like, real famous at that time, but later everyone would know his name, Rick Warren. He calls up and says, we want to jointly appoint you as a church planting professor. i just done a doctor of ministry uh, at Southern Seminary. And so I became the first church planting professor in America. 
And uh, that's kind of how I began my walk into academia, which was a fascinating All right. Well, let's take a step back before we get there because you've had an interesting religious upbringing. Sure. Share with us a bit of your religious upbringing. So grew up in a nominally Catholic home, so we didn't go to church except on Christmas and Easter. Um, My parents were still sort of, you know, just rebelling against some of that. Their childhood, you know, Irish Catholic. Uh, We were more Irish than we were Catholic, but if you were Irish, you were Catholic. So, um, so Christmas and Easter, maybe go to first communion, things of that sort. Um, so, and wasn't had no no real, real connection to faith. Um, so my mother, uh, becomes, well, actually first my sister rides a bus. It was the late seventies. So this bus comes by and my sister rides the bus to church and she becomes a Christian. Now Uh, you're in New York, New New York York, City. Right, right. Just when I came home as a kid, I lived in New York City in Queens and then we moved out to a place called Levittown, which is a very, the first suburb in the world. So first pre-manufactured suburb. And so, um, so my sister came to Christ. My mother was like, well, that's strange. Just a kid. And then my mother goes off to her Catholic church and there's something called the Catholic charismatic movement, something called Curcio, which some people may be familiar with. So she becomes a believer there. Uh, then we, our family kind of falls apart. We all move to Florida. Uh, she starts going to a, a, an Episcopal church. One day I get in trouble as I often did as a young man. And my mother grounds me. She can, she says, you can either be grounded at home for a week, not leaving your room, or there's a youth camp that our church is sponsoring and you can go to that. That's the horror of every youth pastor is that people get grounded to youth camp. So, um, so I, I was, and, but while I was there, heard the gospel and was born again by grace and through faith and started a spiritual journey because I came from a non-Christian home. I mean, my, my mother was a Christian for like hours, not really, but not much at all. Uh, I kind of like, you know, because my daughters are all raised in a Christian home. It's a different experience when you're raised in a dysfunctional Christian home. I was all in. So two years later, I was starting that Bible, a few years later, I was starting that Bible study that Donna came to and et cetera, et cetera. So I just uh, really just experienced a radical life transformation. All right, you, you grew up with a father who was an alcoholic. Yes. Uh, uh, and, and one that took a while to find sobriety, it yeah. sounds like. Um, how did you learn to be a good dad? Uh, from Wait, other places. Are you a good dad? I am a good dad. It's a fair okay, question. Go ahead. Well, you now, know, I, answer. <laughs> I have three daughters, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's, you know, three daughters is a lot of work. I'm like the lead counselor in Camp Estrogen, so you kind of have to get used to that. Yeah, uh, our, our pastor, Jared, has four daughters, as do we, and he's fond of saying he's president of his own sorority. That's true. I can see that. I can yeah. see it's, it's exactly it. So you have all good yeah. daughters as well. So, um, so, you know, it was a learning experience. Partly, though, my father gets sober. Uh, he, by the way, he's in Alcoholics Anonymous and he gives me permission to share that. That's important to sort of mention that. So, so he gets sober and his life is just changed. So, so he goes to college at 32 years of age. Wow. Graduates from the University of Central Florida, summa cum laude, uh, and, and eventually ends his career as kind of the pioneer of employee, employee assistance program and the leader of that at Campbell Soup in, in Philadelphia. So his, alcoholism journey actually led him to basically create many of your companies today have an employee assistance program that helps with addiction. And my father was on the front page of HR magazine because he pioneered the program that many of your companies use. So very proud of my dad. Um, And it's a good plug for the Lord. Yes. Who I am fond of saying is a master recycler. He recycles better than anybody else. He went green before green was a color. And he is able to take all of the garbage in our life 
and create something incredible for his glory. Yeah, so we moved out. And so my father was already trying to step into that space. But for me, there was a, when I was a teenager, there was, uh, I went to this little church plant, this little Anglican church plant. And there was the youth director who sold insurance. His name was Steve Morgan. And Steve kind of became a surrogate father for me. So he, um, on my second date, uh, we went to, the second date we went to, I forget what it was, but some fancy thing. He was 40-something years old, and I didn't have my driver's license yet. So he drove us as a chauffeur on the fancy date. So when I got married at 20, you know, you look across the groomsmen, they're all 20, 20, 20, and then there's this 42-year-old man. Uh, he was one of my groomsmen. So he was a mentor and a father figure for me. I saw the way he loved his kids. You don't know as maybe you're engaging some student age or young adult, you don't know what they're observing. And I observed the kind of father Steve Morgan was, and I wanted to be a father like that. So I learned it from other people, and because my dad's a great grandfather, but he wasn't at the place in his life he could be a great father. All right. To Spoiler alert here. So you grew up in this home. You become a Christian uh, uh, through grounding at the... Uh, Episcopal youth camp True. one summer. Yep. And somehow you wind up holding the Billy Graham chair at Wheaton. Yes. Something happened between youth yes. camp and Billy Graham yeah. chair That's at true. Wheaton. That's true. Uh, give us a thumbnail. So um, church planning is a big part of that. So I, I, I had done, you know, when we were in Buffalo, I didn't have a seminary degree. So I started doing some seminary work. I got, I did a couple of master's degrees when I was in Buffalo, studied at all different schools, went to a, a Roman Catholic seminary to study preaching. That wasn't particularly helpful to study um, and study history of the Reformation. Turns out they have a very different perception of what happened during the Reformation. Uh, but that was fascinating. So I did, I did a couple of master's degrees. Uh, By the way, none of that is meant to disparage the Catholic faith. It's all just part of it. Just have a different yeah. view they of what happened. View. Yeah, Their no, enthusiasm no, no. for Martin Luther is lower than our enthusiasm for that Martin Luther. That is true. That is um, true. I serve on the board of a Catholic monastery. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. John Michael Talbot's uh, sure. little portion community. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, on, I'm, I'm his token Protestant. That's fascinating. Well, in the classes that I attended at the Catholic seminary, I was the token Protestant as well. There you uh, go. And I was a I was a former Catholic, and so they but they would always say that nobody really is a former Catholic because my name is still on the roll of St. Bernard's Roman Catholic Church in Levittown, New York. So they kind of it's like a Baptist church. Once you're on the roll, you can never get off of the roll of a Baptist church. Anyway, um, so, so you started taking seminary yeah, classes. Yeah, started taking seminary took classes. Some of the Catholic seminary. Right. So, so then I did a doctor of ministry at Sanford University and became a professor. And so, but in that journey, um, I was mostly a church planter. So, you've got to remember, I planted the church in Buffalo, church in Erie. We planted churches out of the church in Erie. Became a professor. And then while I was at seminary teaching as a professor, I did another doctoral degree, a PhD, in missiology, and I started doing research. And so research is kind of what eventually led to the Billy Graham chair. Because and missiology is the is study of missions. Study of missions, study of how we engage and understand culture. So I worked on engaging and understand culture. And the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton, of course, was founded by uh, Billy and Ruth Graham. They were uh, the initial board members of this. And it's in, you know, there's four, there's four things in America that have the name Billy Graham attached to them. They're actually different organizations, right? The BGEA is by far the largest, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Wheaton College is the second largest Billy Graham Center. So what my job was there, we did some research, we, we helped gather Christian leaders to 
grow in their advance of the gospel. So they'd be more effective, faithful, and fruitful, sharing the gospel, planting churches, being missionaries. So that became the focus while I was there for seven years. Before that, I was at a place called Lifeway. Uh, some of you remember Lifeway, uh, the bookstores. Lifeway, still Lifeway's still around, but the bookstores aren't. Um, and I was the vice president of research, communications, a few other things, entrepreneurial innovation. But I did a lot of the research there. So uh, we had all kinds of research on what's going on in culture, how to understand culture. Made sense as a missiologist. I wanted to do that. So from there, I ended up at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, where I left four months ago. Because yeah, it is cold in Chicago. You're now, yeah, you moved to L.A. I did. You're now at Biola, the Biola. Bible Institute of Los Angeles. That is true. That is true. I'm at the Talbot School of Theology, which is theology school mm-hmm. at Biola University in the Los Angeles area. And um, uh, how you like your new job? Have you been to Southern California this time of year? Uh, yeah. It's kind of perfect. Oh. Um, the job's great. I came to Houston, and all it's done has been cold and rain. Is it like this all the time in no, Houston? No, we, we ordered it for you. Okay, thank you. It feels like Chicago yeah. again. Generally, we have two seasons here. Yeah. We have summer and January. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> this must be January, just early. Um, but no, I very much like it. You know, Talbot is the, uh, Biola is the, I'm sorry, Talbot with the seminary is the fifth largest multi-denominational seminary in the world. And we have students all around the world. I've had, even yesterday, I had students come up to theirs, and I'm currently a student in the program. And so, love it very much. Love uh, training pastors and missionaries to live on mission. And of course, as an undergraduate university, Biola just has such great innovative things. We were just named one of the top 20 film schools in the nation. The only Christian school on the list. Our Christian and media arts programs. All kinds of amazing things happen at Biola. Wow, that's great. And my great. daughter is a student at Biola. Well, that makes it even nicer. No, not for her. But yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> she actually sat down with us at Wheaton when I was at Wheaton. She said, Mom and Dad, I'm the youngest. We're all super close. I really feel like, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I don't want to go to Wheaton because, you know, Dad's name is kind of, un- our name's unusual. Everyone will know I'm your daughter. So I'm going to go to Biola University and kind of get away from, get away from the that. Name. And so, and then a year later, I sat her down and said, hey, guess what? <laughs> uh, we're coming too. So anyway. Uh, you just missed her too much. I did, I did, I did. Yeah, yeah. So what is it about God that captivated your interest? Probably very early on, you know, we just moved from New York City. I was kind of like, like a mess in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, even some of the brokenness of our family. My sister got a rare form of cancer at the age of 12. My family was breaking up and divorce. My dad was an alcoholic. My mom was trying to figure out life. Uh, really, when I say she's a Christian, she was Christian because she was just couldn't figure out what else to do or be. And I remember at Camp Wingman, it's outside of uh, Orlando, that the speakers, and this this would have been, you know, um, the, they're playing the Jesus People Movement kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. A little too old for the Jesus People Movement. I was a little too young for the Jesus People Movement. But some of the leftovers from that ten years later. And they were singing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the speaker used the word, to my recollection, I mean, it's a long time ago, says, if you want to give your life, Jesus gives his life to you. Like he talked about this exchange. And I said, man, I'm I'm in trouble. And I just moved from New York City. And... When you move from New York City to rural Florida, it's a whole different world. I yeah. mean, the, the language that I used that I thought was normal language, none of the kids could play with me because they all called it cussing. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> and I just thought they were, my dad called them bowling words, so I didn't know. So, um, you know, so I was, I was starting over, difficult life, um, and I just took that exchange, and Jesus... So I don't know that I knew a lot theologically. I just knew Jesus promised me a new life, and I wanted him 
not my current life, and I trusted and followed him as Lord and Savior. It was a good swap. It was a good swap. He kept all the good stuff and made it better. Amen, amen. You know, the later would know that would be imputation doctrinally, that my sin was imputed to Jesus, his righteousness was imputed to me, and what a joy it is to live into that new life in Christ. Amen. So, um, God, you have this transformational moment. Yeah. A born-again experience. Yep. You, know, you were talking last night about what it means to be an evangelical right. and, and all. And uh, I was reminded of a radio show that I would get called on to up in New York City frequently. And the, the fellow on the radio show, it, it wasn't a religious show yep. per se, but he'd call me on to ask me religious questions. Mm-hmm. And he would always tell his audience, which was predominantly uh, either Catholic or Jewish yeah. or, or nothing, uh, he would tell his audience, now, Mark is from Texas, and he's a born-again. <laughs> and that was the label he would use for me. He would call me a born-again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in a real sense, you were born-again or, alternate translation, born from above. Sure. Yeah, and I definitely received new life in Christ. It changed everything. Did you sense it? I did. I did. Overwhelmingly, something was different, something had changed. Now, again, not everyone has that same level of experience, but when you come from maybe the brokenness that I came from, I just knew that Jesus changed me and everything was going to be different from that day forward. And it has been. And it has been, yeah. So, uh, you know, even like as a teenager, I recognize like, like even my own, my own daughters raised in a Christian home, you struggle sometimes, you've got to make the faith your own. Um, you know, you backslide back and forth. And of course, I've sinned and ba- I'm sure I've backslidden. But like as a teenager, I was the kid every day bringing his Bible to school, telling people about Jesus, starting the Bible study. Um, I, I was just obsessed with the good news that Jesus changed me and saved me. And this troubled kid from New York City had a new life in Christ. Mm. So. And and soon a softball player to call uh, oh, his girl. Oh, little cute <laughs> uniform she had on. And she, number 20, by the way. And so I still, uh, we got married and, and we've been married now 36 years and uh, super fun. We're empty nesters now, which is the greatest. Well, you thing. were till you followed your daughter to Bio. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. That's true. She was not happy at first. She is subsequently warmed to the idea. Part of what she had to realize is that you, you know, even in the introduction, you said, "Yo, Ed Stetzer," and most, but no 18-year-old knows who Ed Stetzer is. Well, but, but, but wait a minute. The under 45 crowd is huge with you. Well, not 18-year-olds. These are 18-year-old okay, college so it's students. under 45, over 18. Well, it's sort of young pastors read yeah. a lot of let, let, Let's get it out in the open here. You have, uh, you do a podcast. I do. And you do a radio show. I do. Your radio show is on the Moody Network. Right. And how many stations carry your radio uh, show? 250 stations. But just for the record, the young people to which you refer are not generally radio listeners. So that may not be making your case. Well, but I'm I'm warming up somewhere. to You're it. You're warming. This is your yeah, legal yeah. your legal acumen. You, you have to you have to you have to walk the path. You walk don't the just path. jump Difference to the end. knowing the path and walking the path. You don't just jump okay. to the All end. All right, fair enough. Fair All right, enough. your honor. So, uh, with <laughs> within the framework of this, you've yeah. got a radio show. Yes, sir. You've got on 250 stations. Yes, sir. How often are you on the radio? Once a week. Once a week. And on top of that. Yeah. You take that wonderful baritone voice, and you have a podcast. I do. And I don't want to make light of people, but tell them what a podcast is. A podcast is a weekly recording, you generally with a guest, that people download, listen to on their phone, on a reg- you know, at their own time and their own convenience. Maybe they're driving to work, whatever else it may be. And you can listen to it at 1.5 speed. So you can do like a... 
30 minute in for the record nobody listens to my podcast at 1.5 speed because i talk at 1.5 speed (laughs) well maybe 1.25 there you go all right now um uh you uh how many people listen to your podcast well uh, each month about seventy thousand dollars so seventy thousand downloads have you tell some of the people you've had on your podcast Oh, uh, Tim Keller, um, uh, Beth Moore, um, I don't know, Rick Lauren, Marco Rubio. Um, you know, it's kind of a diverse, diverse conversation. Yeah, but, but what lawyers? Oh, um, <laughs> Mark Lanier. <laughs> that was the greatest podcast ever. I mean, hundreds came, thousands were saved listening to that podcast. Um, you, because uh, I, I don't know about you, but. Like, I'm not used to your pace. You're like, you are personally the book of the month club. I mean, every month, oh, Mark Lanier's got a new book. Mark Lanier's got a new book. In addition to slaying giants, changing the world, building theological libraries. So let's talk about your spiritual journey. (laughs) God's been very, very good to me. you want to know that? Yeah, yeah. Look, right now, uh, Becky and I are just living moment by moment. Three grandkids. We, We have, so our... Gracie, our oldest daughter, and her husband, JT, who live in Florida with four children, four and under, they decided to go run a marathon. Well, their life's a marathon. Four (laughs) kids, four and under. They dropped the three oldest ones off here on their way to the marathon Thursday night. So we have a just-turned-four-year-old and twin (laughs) two-year-old girls who know no fear. And so Becky and I are truly living... Moment by moment until now. Becky, where are you? Look, see, she can wave because yeah. we have child care oh. down the hall. <laughs> we drop the kids off. Becky says, now, is there aftercare till five yes. tonight? <laughs> you become one of those parents. Yeah, I yeah. I come to church for the service. Free from my children. Yeah, yes, exactly. that's exactly it. No, um, uh, we're having the time of our lives. But uh, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, compared to doing this, what I do is nothing. Yeah. Um, uh, so you you have, now you've written. Yes. Tell us about your books. Uh, first book I wrote was on church planning. You just kind of came out of that experience. And uh, I guess that kind of became a little surprise. Everyone, everyone in church planning sort of bought it. And so they said, well, write another one. So I primarily have written on church planting, uh, evangelism, church revitalization. Then I branched into some more kingdom of God, theology and missiology, wrote a textbook in my field. And my most recent book is called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And that was actually, um, I sat down with my publisher in 2016. Everyone was mad. Everyone was outraged. And so the publisher said, why don't you write a book on outrage? And so I said, well, I mean, it's 2016. It's an election season takes about a year to write a book if you're me not you i know but it takes about a year to write a book and then as you know you got to go through the pub process and get in the stores so i said it's gonna be two years before the book's out if i write a book on outrage i'm not sure people are still going to be outraged in 2018 (laughs) so uh, thankfully i listened to the publisher and that's been the best-selling book i've ever written because uh everyone's still outraged as well so um but i've written 12 written or co-written 12 books so what 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 is the Outrage book. Give us give us that uh, sure. back cover. Story yeah, so it, it sort of starts with the fact that people are creating sense of outrage towards Christians, 
And uh, I start with the example of, uh, of a Christian owner of a, um, a music festival and how, you know, we've got to boycott this person, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone's outraged because something that that, that person did uh, or believed about, um, I think about sexuality in this case. And then I gave the response to, um, there was this internet pastor, I'm not quite sure what an internet pastor is, but there was an internet pastor who was outraged at a company and kind of created a false narrative about this company that the company didn't actually do. And so it's kind of like everyone wants to be outraged at each other. And right now we live in a season when people are, and it's kind of tricky because we want people to be discipled in places like this in churches by the word of God. But far too many people today are being discipled by their cable news choices. They're being spiritually shaped by talk radio and their social media. And all of those things are geared towards the propagation of outrage because if you stay mad, you come back, you listen more. You, the algorithm actually is intended to get you mad and feel like you're part of people who are similar in you. You can poke and stick back against the world. And I, I would say that as followers of Jesus, you know, Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, from now on, we don't see anyone from a worldly point of view. So I think you can have a worldly point of view, even that agrees with you ideologically, but if you're not shaped by the power of the gospel, you end up sounding more like the world's reaction to the cultural moment than faithful followers of Jesus and their reaction to the cultural moment. So I kind of write about what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, winsomely engaging the culture, standing up for what's right, standing out in the midst of the world, and doing so in a way that's persuasive to the world that needs Jesus. You know, one of the most... Yeah, amen. One of the most prominent things that Paul is known for writing is that uh, famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. And he doesn't use the word... I'm trying to think of any of the Greek that could be translated outrage. Um, He doesn't really use that word, but he does just talk over in so many different ways emphatically. I speak in the tongue of angels yeah. or of men. Right. If if I have prophetic powers, if I've got enough faith to move mountains, if I get my body to be burned, it's all of these ex- incredible things, but don't have love, then I'm nothing mm. and I'm wasting space and I'm wasting my breath and I'm wasting my life. Yeah. And it's hard to put outrage and love together. I'm not saying that there aren't times. So there's certainly a righteous anger? Yes, that there's yeah. righteous anger. Right. But for a lot of people, if you righteous anger would be angry at the things that God is angry about and angry in the ways that God is angry. And for a lot of people, it's just venting and spewing, for example, on social media. And you're saying, Ed, you know, I mean, can I, are you saying I can't say whatever I want on social media? You can. I mean, it's Veterans Day. People, uh, yesterday was Veterans Day. And we're, people. And by the way, people, thank you for your service to exactly, the country indeed. if you're a veteran. People died for defending our country. And we're so thankful for those of you who served. So you can say anything you want. The question is whether or not it honors the Lord and advances the mission. You say, well, Ed, I'm just going to be frank. Well, let me just say, if your name's not Frank, you might want to tone it down a little bit on social media uh, and get it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ because you want to build bridges with people. You can stand up for things. I mean, you're in the business of standing up for people, and you can do so still in ways that honor the Lord. Yeah, you used the word winsome as we were talking about this dialogue. Uh, I love that word. Um, explain what you mean by winsome. Yeah, it's tricky because right now there's a bit of a war on winsome. Maybe because I don't know in every way that winsome is going to get us through this cultural moment. But by winsome, it means to be, I mean, and part of it means to be attractive in our communication, speech, and demeanor. But so I, I think the question is, how do we engage the world around us? Do we engage the world around us as those who have been transformed by the power of the gospel, who walk in a peace that passes understanding, who seek to build bridges. We can look in, in the book of Acts, 
we see Paul in Pisidian Antioch building bridges with the Jewish community. And he starts with history. Rich Jewish history sermon. You go a little further in the text, he goes to this place uh, down, down the road, a little more, little more rural, a little more kind of out of the way of things. And he actually talks about nature. And he talks about, he talks about the harvest and the seas. And then you go a little bit in the, further into the text, you get to Acts 17, and he actually quotes Epicurean and poet philosoph- uh, poets and philosophers, Stoics and poets and philosophers. And he talks about a statue to an unknown God. Paul's trying to build bridges... And I think winsome Christians will try to build bridges in culture to show and share the love of Jesus. So, for example, for me, I mean, personally, I try to do this with, um, you know, I, I just moved. Five months ago, I moved. And I mapped out my neighbors. I drew a picture of my neighborhood. And I'm meeting one neighbor at a time, getting to find out a little bit about them, finding out who doesn't know the Lord, who does know the Lord. And I want to build a relationship with them over the next few years that I'm there and ultimately have the privilege to share the gospel with them. I did that in Wheaton. I did that in Tennessee where I lived before that. I think it matters to build those winsome relationships. So um, uh, it's interesting also because winsome as an idea, uh, th- there are a lot of studies on what gives a person credibility. And as a trial lawyer, I, I read every one of those studies I can because I want credibility. As a teacher of the gospel, I read all those studies I can because I want credibility. And one of the traits, one of the eight most prominent traits of credible people is winsomeness. And yet, the social scientists who study this have such a horribly hard time defining it. Mm. You know, it's just kind of a, some call it charisma, some call it, but it's, and, and I'm convinced part of winsomeness in its truest form is something that God can work in your life yeah. if yeah. you learn to love yeah. and seek the heart of it's God good. Good. and other people. I mean, we know people that are just so filled with the Holy Spirit, they've so been shaped by the power of the gospel, that you just want to be around them. So let's seek to be those kinds of people. Exactly. I, yeah. I teach lawyers. Uh, uh, I do a two-and-a-half-day seminar each year where I'll... I'll have 1,200 lawyers come to, to learn how to communicate. And I always tell them that I can give you the legal education credit for coming. But on the third day, if you want to come an hour early, I can't give you credit. But I'll tell you the real thing that I think unlocks success as a lawyer. Mm. And you come an hour early. Fair warning, it's going to be a religious discussion. And they'll come. We had five, Janet, five or six hundred come uh, an hour early to Amazing. hear. Yeah. Uh, and and I basically say exactly what you say. You give your life to God. He does the swap, and He starts to transform. Does you. indeed. And now all of a sudden, as a lawyer, you start caring about truth, yep. not winning. Now all of a sudden, as a lawyer, you start caring about justice mm. over winning. And and these are the things that can transform who we are. Yeah, I love that you are. Uh, teaching persuasion, because I think, uh, you know, when I did my, my first doctorate is a doctor of ministry, and I wrote my dissertation on persuasion, so Perloff, Caldini, some of the scholars yeah, in the yeah. field, and, uh, and I will tell you that pastors often struggle with how to engage, but you have to be able to persuade people. You want to you wanna do this at your church. You want to you wanna engage in a building program. You want to go to do evangelistic yeah. strategy, but just in general in culture, 
I think part of the challenge right now is that evangelical Christians sometimes have a negative uh, perception in culture. Polls show that. It's not, not just my, my opinion of that. And I think ultimately that the early Christians were so attractive to people because they cared for other people, because they were known for showing and sharing the love of Jesus. I wrote an article in USA Today in 2020, and I talked about how Christians are going to serve in the midst of, you know, we didn't know what was going to exa- exactly happen, and of course everyone has opinions on what should or should now, but just stay with me just for a second on the theme. And I said, Christians are going to be, we're going to step into this space and show and share the love of Jesus. And I quoted Eusebius. Eusebius is a, he's a famous church historian from the early church. And he said 300s. this. Yeah, 300s. And he wrote this. He said that the Christians, quote, deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians, unquote. And I got to quote that in USA Today, which was fun. So what I want to say related to that is that when Christians do what's right, stand up for what's right, doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. People are going to be unhappy with us at times. But when they know us as their neighbor or their coworker or their friend and their family member, and there's just this irrepressible joy that's there, this desire to be in community with others, this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it makes a difference. And I think we need more Christians shaped by the power of the gospel, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, engaging well. People who don't know him, that'll change the world right there. Yeah. So if you go back, yeah, if you go back and you look at the early church, when the church, um, and lead the, the Acts, from the end of Acts, what we know about church history for the next several hundred years. Uh, the, over and over, scholars back then, which would be like Eusebius, yeah. um, uh, but also scholars today, say that there were three principal things that caused the massive growth in Christianity, other than people just expressing their faith. But number one, people loving other people mm-hmm. and the way they loved other people. Number two, the way Christians have their funerals because death is not the end. Mm-hmm. It's the turning of a page and the value and, and all. And then number three, uh, martyrdom. Yeah. Uh, the, the blood of the saints was the, the seeds of the church. Um, and, and you go back and you look at some of those people. You, you, you watch the way they, they died for their faith. And it is. It is even today. It, it's awe-inspiring. Yeah, you might, if you're interested more in that, read Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Early Church, which is kind of the key book on that era. He was a uh, uh, professor at Wycliffe, where you yeah. partner over with Lanier over there. And uh, just an amazing book that really kind of changed my approach to evangelism probably when I was 26 years old. Yeah, yeah my approach was changed. Charles Mickey sitting over there. Charles, wave your hand. Um, Charles Charles Mickey was uh, our campus minister when I was a kid and uh, Charles had us read a book I don't even know if you remember this friendship evangelism do you remember that and the whole idea was you know we were were in a college program that Charles oversaw and it was at a secular university uh, Texas Tech you've probably heard of it Um, it uh, small struggling school yeah well you know the Harvard of Texas and the um, (laughs) um, uh or Harvard being the Texas Tech of the Northeast. There you go. And, uh, uh, but Charles would have all of us show up two or three days before class started, move-in time, and we, as a student ministry, were moving in all the kids into the dorms. And we had already set up all of the Bible studies to happen on each floor in yep. each dorm. 
And we were the ones saying, hey, we're moving you in. Oh, by the way, you don't know anybody much here? We have a Bible study tonight. We have a da-da-da-da-da. And your campus ministry that that you oversaw, God not only blew it through the doors, but even those then college students who'd come to know the Lord, after about like a year or two at Tech, they would say, wait a minute. We come from an affluent enough family who's paying our tuition. Why don't eight or ten of us all transfer to a campus that doesn't have a campus ministry, wow. doesn't have a church. Wow. We'll go start, start one. Start something there, amazing. And yeah. uh, uh, one of them in Bellingham, Washington, is now a church of thousands of people. Wow. And uh, it's just really cool yeah. the way God Intentionality does Intentionality combined with a winsome ambassadorial engagement changes the world. And Friendship Evangelism became this very famous book. Uh, and there's others too, like Out of the Salt Shaker uh, is another great one in that space. The idea is that, because part, part of the challenge in the last few decades is a lot of people say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, actually, I have, I have some great news for you. Nobody does because it's never mentioned in the Bible. There's no such thing as a gift of evangelism mentioned in the Bible anywhere. There's the evangelist that's mentioned in the Bible. And what does the evangelist do? Equip God's people for works of service. So sharing the gospel is everybody's call, everybody's responsibility. So let's join Jesus on mission, showing and sharing his love to our neighbors. I'll just tell you my practice. So one of the things I love to do, I started doing it in Tennessee. And I, I lived when I was, at, I was a, at Lifeway. And I mapped out my neighbors. And within eight houses of me, I mapped out eight houses of me where non-Christians lived. There were several where there were believers. And I sought, Don and I sought to build relationships and share the gospel with those eight neighbors. And five years later, we were able to share the gospel with seven of eight of them. And what I mean share the gospel, I don't mean just invite to church. We invited to church, all of them. But the neighbors three doors down had the privilege of seeing them come to faith in Christ, baptizing them, becoming engaged and involved in our church. Two doors over, the, the husband wasn't a Christian, became a follower of Jesus. We got him involved in another church. And three doors down the other side, they came to Christ, actually eventually prepared, uh, excuse me, were baptized, were prepared for global missions, and then went to plant churches in Brazil. So all from our neighborhood by intentionally building those relationships. Now, they didn't see me as a pastor generally. They, I was a business person at Lifeway, you know, half a billion dollar corporation at the time. And I will tell you, if you'll live on mission and you'll say to the Lord, Lord, use me and let me share the gospel, God will open the doors for those conversations. I just encourage you to seize a hold of that mission and show and share the love of Jesus. Does Sorry, it, I got to preach in there. No, that, that's wonderful. I'm, 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 I want to go there. Okay. <clears throat> Does it matter how old we are? Does not matter how old we are. Does it matter if we've ever done it before? Nope. It's all, there's never the wrong time to start sharing the gospel. Do we need uh, special training? Nope. I think it's helpful sometimes to maybe have some training because you want it'll help you feel more confident. But at the same time, when you start sharing their faith and people say, "Well, what about this?" You, you can just say, "Well, I don't know. Can I can can I check? Can we learn together and go on that journey?" Yeah. Um, do you just knock on their door and say, "Do you want Jesus?" No, no. What, what, what do you do? <laughs> well, all right. First of all, let me just say, so I'm part of something called the He Gets Us campaign. Some of you have seen the ads on television and on the sporting events. So we partnered together and the Luis Palau Association and I created a video series called an Evangelism Masterclass. And we gathered all these people that are some of the best known people about sharing their faith in the world. People like J.D. Greer is a pastor, Christine Kane as an evangelist, uh, Mark Middleberg's an author. And we put together, it's free, I didn't tell you this ahead of time, but it's free. And if you just Google Evangelism Masterclass, it's the first thing that comes up. And you can actually 
go through that, help you to understand how to engage your neighbor, help you understand the basic questions that people might have. It's wonderfully multi-denominational. And did I tell you how much it costs? It's free. So I encourage you to pick that up. But I, again, that help, I think that does help people because a lot of people are nervous and they're partly nervous because what if they ask questions? And what I would say is people generally do ask questions. You don't have to have all the answers. I will tell you, I've been a pastor for 30 plus years and people just, just recently someone asked me a question and it was really about suffering and why this person suffered. And my answer was three very important words for you to know as a Christian. I don't know. I don't know why that specific thing happened to that specific person. But let me tell you what I know. Actually, let me tell you who I know and can give grace and comfort in the midst of that hurt. So, so again, that'll help people be prepared even in those conversations. Um, now, you have another thing that you do that I find fascinating. You have basically told the preaching world across denominational lines that you will uh, fill in and preach um, for the preacher who's just needs it that Sunday sort of, for some sort reason. Of. So well, there's, tell there's us some, about this. There's some caveats there. So, Because um, I'm, I'm the teaching pastor at a very large church in California, so most of my experience is kind of in that space. So when I'm in a town and I have a free Sunday, I don't do it every Sunday, but when I'm in a town and I have a free Sunday, I will tweet typically a couple of days ahead of time, if you're pastoring a small church which is generally under 100 in attendance, and you would like to have somebody come fill in for this Sunday, um, and uh, it'll be any denomination, as long as you don't tell me what I can and can't preach, because, uh, you know, you can get some crazy folks who reach out to you as well. I'm like, I'm fine. The message might help address some things in the, in the theology, but never had, a, never had that problem. It says, I'll come, and, I'm, and so I happened to know I was going to be here at the Sunday school class. And I knew I was going to be free. And so I put out a little bit more specific tweet. If you're in the Houston area within a uh, certain, uh, close to, I don't know where we are. Are we in Northwest Houston? Sure. I forget what I said. Close to Northwest Houston. You're under 100 in attendance. And your service is at 11 o'clock. And you would like to have me come in and fill in your small church. And so I'm going from here to a nice, cute little Nazareth. Cute. Don't say cute to them. Uh, wonderful uh, this little. This is just on the internet. Go yeah, ahead. Exactly. It's just on the internet for that. Maybe they're watching right now. Hi, Nazarenes. I love you. So I'm going to go preach at a small Nazarene church after this because in America today, um, <coughs> small church, small churches and small church pastors are often left behind. And so I love to be able to encourage a small church pastor. They, they can't pay me. I'm going to bring him, I'm going to bring this pastor some books and bless him and, uh, and let him know that I love him. So, so there, I don't preach somewhere every Sunday, um, but most Sundays, uh, if I'm not a guest speaker at a church, like, uh, like to this Sunday and next Sunday, there's a small church in California that I'll do. And then I, you know, preach at my church again, you know, so it's different. It kind of, sh- but, but when I have a free Sunday, I want to say the typical church size in America today is nothing like your Sunday school class is four times the size of the typical church, uh, church in America today. This church, I, I, you know, I when I was at Lifeway for 10 years, you know, I had, I had files on probably 10,000 churches and a file on your church is on a special section in the files called freakishly abnormal. Um, <laughs> uh, for the kingdom of God, it's all good. Uh, but, but, um, but a typical church in the United States is under 100 in attendance. It's actually dropped about 10% since COVID. The pastors maybe got a second job, working hard, struggling, uh, struggling to, to make ends meet. And I love to bless small church pastors. All right. I see Dale Hearn over there. Dale, yeah. wave your hand. Hey, Dale. Dale. Dale worked for Word, um, books, publishing? music, publishing. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so Michael Hyatt worked for Michael Hyatt back in the day. All right, he's right. told me some interesting lessons he learned. Yeah. You talk about your time at Lifeway. Yeah. What are some of the lessons you learned by having exposure to all of those different churches and files? And, yeah, sure, and for sure. So um, Lifeway experience was interesting because Lifeway is a Baptist agency trying to engage the evangelical world. So part of the challenges is how broadly do you engage the evangelical world? So a big part of Lifeway's struggles was what do we carry in our bookstores? What do we not carry in our bookstores? So uh, for me, part of what I learned is that, you know, I'm, I'm um, the, I use the word conservative evangelical. I'm a theological conservative. Uh, I learned to walk with people who may not have the same theological beliefs on minor issues, but do agree with me on major issues. And that was a joy to get to go be with Nazarenes in just a little bit who have a you know different view on some things than we would hear as as a Southern Baptist church. So so that was a great joy. I also learned, um, just to be transparent, that a lot of Christians um, are more likely to, um, when it comes to like a bookstore, they're more likely to buy something that sort of helps helps them have positive memories about their faith than actually to go dig deeper in their faith. So the gift section in a Lifeway store was always bigger than the theology section in a Lifeway store. And, and I think ultimately, I mean, even here, you're helping people to dig a little deeper. I would say that, you know, I mean, I think precious moments figurines are great. I just don't think that that's going to get you through some of the hardest times in life. And um, I think right now we're walking through a culturally divisive and convulsive time. I think it's going to probably get worse before it gets better. I'm not trying to put that on anybody, but the last time there was a cultural convulsion like this was the late 60s, um, peaked in 1968, didn't really resolve to 1972. I don't think we're in the peak of the cultural division we're in right now. We're going into another election season. We're got, I mean, we got a war in Europe. We got a war in the Middle East. Everyone's just waiting for the other shoe to drop for a war in Asia. And so th- this is unlike anything that you and I've lived in. Some of you are old enough to remember the late 60s. So, and that uh, was a crazy time. I am. You're old enough to remember the late 60s? How old, how old were you in 1968? Uh, eight years old. No, you don't. Maybe you remember that because you're a freaking nature. Uh, but I'm you don't remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, I, I can remember, so we lived in Rochester, New York. Oh when my. When I was eight years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can remember driving down the road. And seeing all the hippies with the road signs of Woodstock because they were hitchhiking to Woodstock. Wow. And so mom and dad explained that to me. I remember all the Vietnam War Did they War really stuff. explain Woodstock to you when you were in well, eight at years the old? T- as Woodstock was unfolding, nobody knew what uh, Woodstock would become. It was Mark, just a... Uh, they knew what it was going to become. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love your naivete yeah. as an eight-year-old, but they knew. They were go anyway. I'm going to well, move on from there. Well, I, I will say this: yeah. we never picked up any of them and gave them a ride to Yasser's Prob- farm. Probably. Okay, so. Prob- but here's, uh, but let's let's go back to 1968. Yeah. So 1968, there were huge protests. Yep. There were riots. Yep. There were assassinations. Uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Bobby uh, Kennedy. Yep. Uh, there was a global pandemic in 1968. Kent State. Uh, Kent State, right? Uh, uh, Hong Kong flu is what your parents probably called it. H three N two. And instead of shutting the world down, they actually started planning. Woodstock, which doesn't seem like a great way to stop the spread of disease, but anyway, that's another story. And so in the midst of all that, it kind of feels kind of similar to some of what we've experienced the last few years. And in 1968, a pastor in Southern California, I just spoke at the church just a few months ago, and he's, he's with the Lord now. He said to his daughter, I want to meet a hippie. And she brought home a hippie. And that pastor and that hippie started a Bible study together, grew to hundreds and then thousands, and then started multiplying all around the world. 
And that's what we call the Jesus People Movement. That pastor was Chuck Smith Chuck at Smith. Calvary Chapel, yep. Lonnie Frisbee. Yep. That happened the last time the culture was this divided. And 20 to 30 million people traced their spiritual heritage to the Jesus People Movement, including me. So I think we're walking through what's going to get more difficult, not less so, for the next few years. It won't last forever. Cultural convulsions can't last forever. Eventually it comes back together. came back together in the, in the early 70s, and we got disco. So let's hope that doesn't happen exactly the same way. But, but so what I think is, you know, there's a reason people are, you know, there's a reason these ads for He Gets Us are resonating. You know, 300,000 people have now been referred to churches through those ads and other campaigns, or half a million people starting to read the Bible and the Bible study plans, or, or Jesus Revolution still playing in theaters, like just shocking Hollywood, or uh, The Chosen being on TV, actually on the CW and all over the world, the largest crowdfunded project, project in history, or people talking about Asbury or what's happening at other universities as well. So I think we're going into an increasingly difficult time and Jesus is on the move in ways that might surprise us five years from now. Amen. So uh, we're, we're wrapping this up, but um, I'd love to know uh, what you're going to preach on for the Nazarene church here coming up. Second Corinthians chapter 5 uh, says, uh, from now on we see no one in a purely human way. Even if we've seen Christ in a purely human way, we no longer see him like that. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's new creation, old things have gone. You know, I'm going to preach through what it means to be new in Christ. And then, says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul's talking about himself and his missionaries there. I'm going to apply some of that to ultimately how we live in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. It's called representing Jesus and his kingdom. And I'm going to share a funny story that I'll share with you. Um, in, um, I'm make sure we don't run out of time. No, we're doing okay. Fine. Okay. So, um, a few years ago, we live in Chicago. You know, I live in Chicago the last seven years and it is cold in Chicago. It is, it got down to minus 27 degrees, not, not wind chill, but actual temperature, which for the record is colder than a legalist heart. <laughs> and that's, and that's cold. And if you're offended by that, do a little soul search and why you're offended by that. But anyway, um, so I'm going to go down to Florida to speak at an event. Donna says it's February in Chicago. She's going to. So we get in the car, and this lady picks us up. Her name is Jane because, uh, you know, I know from the app. And I, she knows my name. She says, hi, Ed. So we introduce ourselves. We get in the car, and Jane is super nice. She says, listen, if you need water, there's water in the seats. There's power cord if you need it. And, and, uh, and, so, and then she says, and take anything you want from the basket between the seats. And I look down, and there's a basket with candy and an obviously strategically placed New Testament of the Bible. And so I looked at Donna and kind of smiled. And, you know, we've been married 30 years at the time, so we actually can have entire conversations without actually using vocal cords. Uh, we just, so she knew what I was going to do, and she was okay as long as I didn't take it too far. So Jane starts talking to us. And where are you guys from? I'm from New York City. She's from Canada. We met in Florida. Oh, what a great story. Told some of our story here. So Jane keeps talking, and sometimes she gets a little too close to the subject. i got to redirect it. She says, well, what brought you to town? I said, i got a job here. She said, what do you do? And I said, you know, I didn't want to say I lead the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. So I said, I'm a teacher. What do you do? And she, we went back and forth. And then Jane finally gets to the place because clearly she has a comfort level sharing the gospel. She says, well, Ed and Donna, do you guys have any like religious upbringing or any spiritual beliefs? And Donna looks at me and she says, that's enough, Ed Stetzer. You got to tell her. So I leaned forward and said, Jane, actually, yes, we're Christians. Matter of fact, I teach evangelism at a graduate level. And Jane, you are doing so great right now. <laughs> like A plus on your assignments. And if you're interested, I actually recorded an interview with her 
um, I just leaned forward with my voice recorder and said, Jane, can I record an interview with you? And I published this interview. got picked up all over the place. If you're interested, just Google Jane the Uber driver, and it went everywhere. I don't do that right now. Um, but the next day, um, I flew down to Florida that day, and the next morning, all of you saw the news on every television screen in America. Billy Graham died. And, you know, I held the Billy Graham chair. I was head of the Billy Graham Center. So fast forward to the funeral there in Charlotte. And uh, the reporter from the New York Times came up to me. Lori's her name. I try to keep in touch with the religion reporters so they have a, an evangelical they can ask questions to. That they don't get caricatured. I try to help. So she came up and asked me the normal questions. You know, how do you think Billy Graham would be received today? Uh, you know, what's his legacy? And then she asked the question that nobody has the answer to, but I was ready for. She said, who's the next Billy Graham? Now, nobody in the family says they're the next Billy Graham. Uh, nobody should. So I just said with a smile, Jane the Uber driver. And she looked at me with a strain. I explained it to her, and she smiled. She said, that's a great story, but it's not making the New York Times. Um, so, but here's the thing. So I'm going to preach today about representing Jesus and his kingdom. And I'm going to talk about Jane. I'm going to talk Billy Graham and how both of them were on a Great Commission highway that stretched, stretched back 2,000 years. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to his disciples, tell someone, and they told someone, and they told someone, and someone told Jane, and Jane was trying to tell us. And Mordecai Ham told Billy Graham, and Billy Graham's trying to tell us. And what I'm going to encourage them today, and I'll encourage you today as we close, is that you have received by grace and through faith the good news of the gospel. You've been born again. You're one of those born-againers that they call you on the radio in New York City. You've been reconciled by God through Christ, and now given the ministry of reconciliation. That Great Commission Highway goes back 2,000 years. Don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on God's Great Commission Highway. Amen. So you be Amen. that person who shows and shares the love Would you Jesus. join me in thanking Dr. Ed Stetzer? And uh, Ed, we've got to get you on the road to the Nazarene Church, but uh, uh, typically at the end of class, I will bless the class in the name of Jesus. I'd ask you to do that for us. Uh, uh, if you don't mind, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's do it together. All right. Father, thank you for these women and men who desire to dig deeper, to live on mission, to show and share the love of Jesus. May we hear the words of Jesus as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. May we respond in obedience as Isaiah did, said, here I am, send me. And may your blessing rest upon these people. May you preserve them without blame until the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ed.